0: All right, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the Build Show podcast. That's right, my weekly time to get together with you guys and go deep. And I got a great topic today. Uh, My topic is my house, a little near and dear to my heart. No guests, just me and you in the studio today. Uh, We'll probably get a little shorter than normal. And uh, what I want to do is take a look back at my house. I called it the Real Rebuild. Uh, and it's kind of a funny name because originally I was going to rebuild it, uh, but in fact I tore the whole house down <laughs> and started with the slab, and then built a new house from there on up. I finished it two years ago uh, this Thanksgiving, so in about another month I'll be in for two years. And on this podcast in particular, I'm going to look back at uh, a few things that I did in particular to bump up energy efficiency and comfort in particular, and. We're going to spend a few minutes uh, kind of talking about what I did, how I did it, what I liked about it, and then now that I've lived in the house for two years, what's worked and what hasn't, kind of from the, from the uh, lens of both lessons learned, expectations met or expectations not met, and also just what's it like living in a high-performance house, which I've built lots of, but frankly, this is the first time I've actually lived in one that being said, Real Rebuild, this is episode one of two. Let's get going. Okay, guys, so my house. Uh, I built this house to a really high standard. Uh, I was really trying to build it to passive house standards, frankly, but I didn't ever get the house uh, actually officially rated as a passive house. I still might do that. I kind of took a lot of the steps, but... But when I say that, what I mean is I had a big uh, focus on both energy efficiency, uh, high insulation levels, and uh, extreme air tightness, as well as making sure the house, which is really the number one goal of any builder, uh, is totally dry. If we have a dry house, we have a house that's not going to have problems. We have a house that's going to have good indoor air quality. We have a house that's not going to have mold issues. Uh, and so when, it, when we think about dryness in all its forms, I spend a lot of time and effort on that, especially thinking about water from the sky uh, and, uh, and then ultimately also thinking about water in the air and dehumidification and indoor air quality. So as we think about energy efficiency, let me walk you through uh, my assemblies for three areas of my house, my floor, my uh, walls, and my roof. And I'm gonna talk to you about kind of how I build it and then how that assembly has performed. So starting with the slab on up, I think I mentioned, originally the house was built in the 1970s. I tore everything down to the slab and started with a slab on up, but the original slab is still there underneath my house. Uh, I made a couple saw cuts on the slab to move some plumbing around, but otherwise it's still the 1970s concrete that I left in place. And you know what? I've got uh, really zero issues with my foundation. The one thing I wish that my slab had, though, is just a little bit more elevation. I've got one side of my house, my left-hand side of my house, uh, which only has an inch or two, some places more like an inch, of slab showing before I hit my siding. The house was kind of dug into the hillside just a little bit and then flows uh, right to left with about a I don't know, two and a half, three foot drop in elevation from the left side of my lot to the right. And so had I done it all over again, uh, or if I really uh, was thinking about it, I think I either would have poured about a six inch curb on that left hand side of my house so that I'd have more slab showing. Or another option, which I'm doing another project right now, is to do a topping slab on top of everything to bring the entire slab up six inches. That's where you basically leave the slab alone Do whatever saw cutting you need to, uh, you know, cut whatever rebar you need to. By the way, this is a slab on grade foundation with grade beams, uh, standard rebar, not a post tension slab and uh, and then re-pour a new slab on top. I'm doing that another job. I did not do that at my house for many reasons, including cost, but that that's been awesome. Now, from that slab, though, I did a detail that I've done a couple times since that I learned from Steve Basic, and that's an insulated slab top. What I did was I used an inch and a half of Halo uh, GPS foam. I put that on top of my slab and then on top of that I did a three-quarter inch Advantech subfloor. Now I didn't just do one layer though, I did two layers of three-quarter Advantech and I ran them perpendicular to each other and then I glued with Advantech glue and screwed those two layers together so I kind of have this raft of subfloor that's floating on top of my GPS foam. So I've got something that's extremely rare in Texas, and that's a fully insulated slab. Just as unheard of, not seen. Uh, you know, I could probably count the number of houses in Texas, uh, or at least in Austin that I know of, on two hands that have some version of an insulated slab. It's just extremely, extremely rare. And there's many reasons for that, but a big reason for us not to do it is termite issues. Uh, here in the south because any foam that's near the ground uh, is a huge termite tunnel and you need to be really cautious about termites getting in behind foam because then they can get in and eat your house up and you'd never know it. So in this case what I've got is an existing slab, slab hop insulation and then a subfloor on top of that so that now here we are two years later I've been walking on my floor for two years and I gotta tell you from a comfort perspective There is nothing better than an insulated slab. It is fantastic. Now, you might remember I lived across the street from this house for almost 15 years before I built this house and moved across the street. That house across the street, built in the 70s as well, uh, 1975, I think, so not quite as old as I am. Uh, That house had very, very cold floors, and I put down a vapor barrier, uh, a layer of plywood that was shot through the vapor barrier, and then a hardwood floor in the kind of main living room space. I had carpet in some of the bedrooms, and then all my bathrooms were tile, including my master bath. And my master bathroom was on an outside wall, including a shower on an outside wall. And all winter long, anytime you were on your feet in, on top of that tile, you wanted to be on top of a towel. You did not want your a towel, not tile, you did not want your feet on the actual tile surface because that cold slab in the wintertime would absolutely draw the heat out of your feet. And it was very, very uncomfortable. The Same was true, believe it or not, on the hardwood floors. Even though I had uh, three quarter inch plywood and then three quarter inch white oak floors on top of that slab, no insulation, which meant that I was very cold in my stocking feet uh, on top of those hardwood floors. It would just suck the heat right off your feet. So my new house, it is an absolute breath of fresh air and it's so hard to explain that level of comfort if you've not lived with it. But I can tell you if you're doing sub floor or floor insulation on a slab on grade house, we do not need to sell it for an efficiency standpoint, although it certainly helps with efficiency. We need to sell it on comfort, both from a thermal perspective but also in a uh, kind of joints perspective, you know, if you walk around co- on concrete in your bare feet, it does not take very long to be uncomfortable. I mean, think about standing in a kitchen sink washing dishes uh, in your bare feet on top of concrete, or even on top of hardwoods that are right on top of concrete. It is not comfortable. There's no give, uh, unlike a house that has uh, joists and a subfloor. And so, by adding that inch and a half of halo foam then my Huber Advantex subfloor, and then my hardwood floors. There's just enough give that it makes it really, really comfortable on my knees and my joints. I absolutely love it. So from a comfort perspective, amazing. Now my walls, my walls I did, um, if you saw any of the videos, I did monopoly framed. And I don't wanna go into too much of the monopoly framing now, but the, the basics are when I framed my wall I didn't have any rafters on my roof poking through the top plates of my wall. Everything was clipped at the joint where the wall was so that my roof uh, decking is touching my wall sheathing. So my I used Huber uh, zip system sheathing. Uh, I used the green version, which is 7 16 in the walls, and that came up. And then my brown zip system sheathing on my roof physically is touching my wall sheathing so that I could put a taped joint right there. I used six inch uh, Huber zip tape on that joint. And now I have a very, very airtight envelope. Now there's a bunch of other details that got me there. Steve basic helped with those you can check out the old videos and I'm actually filming a series talking about some of those right now. But the long and short of it is uh, I made a very airtight shell by using Huber zip system as my air barrier. And then I decided not to use Zip R, where uh, the foam is in between the studs and the zip. I decided to do exterior insulation. Zip R is a great product. Don't get me wrong; uh, I absolutely love it. I'm actually doing about to do it on a, another project right now. But even better than Zip R, in my mind, is to use the zip as your standard sheathing, and then put your your exterior insulation, your out outboard of that zip. So you've got this continuous, no thermal bridge action going on the full outside of my house. And that's one point that I wanted to mention when it comes to efficiency and comfort, eliminating those thermal bridges is a really big deal. Uh, And that's a big part of getting passive house certification as well Is really showing that you've eliminated all the thermal bridges in the house, whether that's, uh, you know, aluminum sills that might be continuous through the house, that's a big thermal bridge. Uh, whether that's higher performance windows, whether that's uh, using exterior insulation to break the thermal bridge of your studs, you really want to think about how do we break those thermal bridges. And if we go back to that monopoly frame that I talked about earlier, my walls uh, have exterior insulation on them. My rooftop also has exterior insulation. I basically turned my roof into a site built SIPs panel. So remember, we talked about the monopoly framing, the walls came up and the wall sheathing touches the roof sheathing. Well, I put two inches uh, of exterior insulation on my walls. I used uh, Atlas insulation, and on my walls I used a foil-faced polyiso. And then on my roof, I did two layers of two-inch insulation up there, and the roof insulation actually touches the wall insulation. So I've maximized, uh, or I should say I've minimized, the amount of thermal bridging on my house really anywhere by doing that. Now, my walls and my roof line are roughly 50% better than uh, code when it comes to R value. Let's talk about how that translates uh, to energy efficiency. Let's also talk about how that translates to comfort. So in my rafters, my uh, roof rafters, uh, because I had such great airtightness from my monopoly framing and I had good thermal bridge protection on top of my roof with that exterior insulation. I use standard Rockwool bats in my walls and standard Rockwool bats in my rafters. Uh, if you've seen the shape of my house, I framed my roof uh, fairly traditionally uh, with two gables and standard 16 inch on center rafters, which meant that I could use pretty basic. Uh, I think there are 32 Rockwool bats in my roof line. And uh, there's an additional benefit to that, which is comfort uh, for my uh, possessions as well. <laughs> if you go into my attic, if you ever seen the videos of my attic, I walk into my attic, and I have no insulation at the, um, the ceiling joist level, and I have a non-insulated staircase to go into my attic because my attic is a conditioned, non-ventilated attic which means that my attic is basically a third story that's not habitable, but works incredibly well for storage. Uh, I've got my mechanicals up there. I have one of my Mitsubishi units up there. Uh, I've got my Zender uh, ERV up there. I've also got all my Christmas decorations. I've got all our beach gear for when we go to the beach. Uh, I've got a surfboard for one of my kids. I've got all our luggage up there. Uh, My wife has a little wrapping station that she wraps all the kids Christmas gifts. It's an incredible area of the house, especially when you think about a house that doesn't have a basement. Most houses in Texas have no basements, and for a a variety of reasons, all my Texas friends know this, but for my northern friends, uh, we have about four inches of soil where I live, and then it's solid rock. So digging a basement is incredibly impractical. It's doable, don't get me wrong, uh, but you're talking about serious blasting, hoe ramming, Uh, Saw cutting, it's not easy. Plus, we don't have to use basements because we don't have a frost line here in Texas. Uh, So all we're typically doing is embedding our houses into the rock where engineers are usually saying, I want you to embed this house 16 or 24 inches down into the limestone Uh, and we're doing some beams to make sure that it's nice and stiff with some rebar. And that's all we need. We're building our houses on top of the ground Uh, with no crawl spaces and no basements. So having a real attic space, a Christmas uh, wrapping station, (laughs) a spot that we can store things, it's kind of like a reverse basement, like all my Northern friends. They've got a basement that has mechanicals down there. They've got a pool table for the kids, maybe some play areas. Maybe they have a finished basement, maybe not. That's pretty much what I have uh, when it comes to my attic. Now, all of my Rockwool insulation is bare, unfaced, kind of like what you might be seeing in my studio. I'm here at the Rockwool Studios in Austin, Texas. The wool on this wall to my right, totally visible, right in the middle of the studs. And you know what? Because that Rockwool is, so, uh, is such a heavy fiber, you don't see it floating in the air. Like I've got a bunch of lights on in my studio, and if there was dust in the air, you could see those little dust particles floating around. There's none of that in the studio space. There's also none of that in my attic. Uh, if you were to pat that rock wool and try and get some dust to come off of it or when you're installing it and cutting it, the fibers are so heavy, they're heavier than the air, they fall down, and you can sweep them up on the floor. So now when I go up into my attic, I don't need a dust mask. I'm not worried about itchiness or uh, coughing or anything getting in my lungs. It's really, really neat, and that's very different than – Fiberglass uh, insulation, in particular, which really bothers me when I go into attics and I always have to take my dust mask. So, there's some interesting kind of comfort perspectives for my house uh, that you don't necessarily think of. Now, a couple of other things I do want to mention though, when it comes to uh, energy efficiency, I'll be honest, my house's bills are higher than what I had expected and what I'd hoped for. Uh, I lived in a 2,000 square foot house. Across the street, that was not very energy efficient. That was very uncomfortable. Uh, and my bills today in my house that's about a thousand square foot more are probably thirty percent higher than my previous house. Uh, now, granted, I do have a thousand square feet more, but as I was thinking about this, or, or as I as I've been thinking about this, why did I expect that my bills would be lower? I have a bigger house. Uh, I have older kids now. I have two TVs instead of one TV. I have a full AV rack with a huge Sonos system that I didn't have in my old house. I just have a lot more phantom loads in my new house. Plus, I've got things uh, like a towel warmer in my master bedroom, and my daughter's bath has a towel warmer. I use that towel warmer almost every single day. And when that thing turns on for two hours, I'll set it on a timer. When it goes on for two hours, it's using 250 watts at a time uh, running for that two hours. So I'm burning... Uh, you know, 250 watts times two hours uh, to dry my towels after I take a shower in the morning. But you know what, that's, that comes back to a comfort thing for me, because I typically in the summertime, or actually quite a bit of the year, I work out in the morning, I get super sweaty, I'm going to shower in the morning. But then at the end of the day, I've got sunscreen on me from being out in the sun on the job site, I've got dirt and grit on me. Uh, I stink. (laughs) I'm not going to go to bed like that. I'm going to take a second shower. And if I don't use that towel dryer, like I didn't, didn't have one in my old house, I would swap my towels a lot. I'd be washing my towels a lot. Uh, I would use a towel in the morning. It'd still be wet at night. It would start to get kind of smelly and gross. Now I absolutely love that towel warmer. And that's something I'm willing to pay for from a comfort perspective even though there's a penalty on the energy perspective. Now, here's something interesting. Uh, In my old house, I remember I mentioned I had really cold tile floors in my new house. I didn't want that. And so I put uh, Schluter-Ditra heat into my floors, but they're on top of insulation. And what (laughs) what I've found is that there's really very few days that I really need to turn that Uh, tile heater on to be totally honest it's just not that cold in my house because I've got that insulation underneath my subfloor and as a result I just don't use that tile uh, floor heater that often I've got it set to manual mode and I only turn it on at the some of the colder or slash coldest days of the year funny enough when I turn it on I notice my dog absolutely loves it and as soon as he realizes that floor is warm that's the first place he lays down Uh, so if you're ever looking for my Labrador, when the tile heater's on, he's in the bathroom, (laughs) he's laying down on the heat. He absolutely loves it. Um, but let's go back to this whole expectations and energy efficiency thing. When I built a house for, uh, an early on client in the early on stages of my business, uh, you know, two, three years after I started my company, I was talking a lot about energy efficiency. I was talking a lot to my clients. As I'm selling them on why build with me, about how they were going to have dramatically lower energy bills, uh, I was getting energy models done for them and showing them. Oh my gosh, look how low your bills are going to be on this house. And I remember very vividly one of my clients, a terrific guy who I've built sense for, said, "Hey Matt, you know I'm looking at my bills after being in the house six months, and you know they just don't meet my expectations. I thought this was going to be a really uh, low bill house." And I went back and found that energy model you did for us through the uh, Energy Raider, and the model's wrong, like, this doesn't work. And I said, gosh, that's crazy, you know, let me come over, let's talk about it, let me look at it. And, uh, you know, I came over to this house that I'd built six months ago, but hadn't spent a lot of time in there since they moved in, realized at the time, he had like three or four plasma TVs in the house. Uh, He worked from home, he had several monitors going, Uh, at his home work office, and it made me think, you know, I just don't know that that energy model was accounting for really how this uh, homeowner was going to live. I mean, how does an energy model account for uh, tile heaters and floor warmers and, uh, you know, maybe LED TVs have gotten more efficient, but still, you put five TVs, four monitors, uh, and six computers in a house, there's just vampire loads that a model is not going to account for. And it really made me uh, think about my sales process. And since that time, uh, I've really moved from selling energy efficiency to selling comfort. And the thing about it is, we always get asked, well, what's the payback on that uh, extra however many inches of insulation or whatever? And there probably is some model you could run that would show that payback. But do you really think that you're going to notice the difference between, uh, let's say, a $200 a month electric bill and a $175 a month electric bill? Uh, and do you think your homeowner's really going to care about the $25 a month savings multiplied by 15 years? What is that? I'm sorry, I didn't calc this ahead of time, so I'm doing it right now. $25 a month times 12 months times, let's say, 15 years. That's 4500 bucks. That's serious money uh, in savings over 15 years. But do you really think they're going to notice that at $25 a month? We need to stop talking about energy efficiency and payback. And we really need to be thinking about how do we talk to our clients about comfort. And the reason to get an airtight house, a house that has at least 50% better than code on uh, all your insulation levels, on your U-factors, on all those things, is to get comfort. And that's the X factor that, that I have absolutely loved about my house after living there for two years. The comfort is not to be beat, uh, not just on my feet with my warm floors. But, for instance, this past summer in July, we went how many days in a row? I forget. Something stupid like 60 or 75 days in a row that every single day the high was above 100. And, by the way, typically the low during that time of the year, uh, is never much lower than about 80 at night. So here you are. You've got your set point on your air conditioner at, say, 72 degrees. And it's only getting down to 80 at night, and it's getting up over 100. In fact, I had 105, 106, 107 some days this summer. And my house, with my extreme air tightness and with my thick blanket of insulation, absolutely cruised during those times. I will, be, uh, I will tell you, though, that because – I used such uh, correct sized equipment. There was a couple of days that I was off the charts when it came to uh, the uh, planned versus the actual. When you do a manual J and you decide what size uh, HVAC equipment you're going to use, uh, you're going to put design temp in there. And by uh, code, I'm required to turn in a manual J that shows a design temp of 99. But in fact, we get higher than that. <laughs> and so a couple things to think about that. Number one, we need a house that can that can withstand higher temperatures. We need a well-insulated house. We need an airtight house so we don't have that crazy hot or crazy cold air leaking in uh, around our windows and doors and around our base plates and around our electrical outlets. That's why all those details I took from my Huber zip system really came back to help me on those crazy hot days and some crazy cold days this past year, which led to ridiculously good comfort. Now there were a couple of days though, that I ended up using my extra mini split. Uh, If you you followed the course of my build, uh, I did a full Mitsubishi system in my house and I really zoned it uh, quite well, such that I have, uh, uh, let's see, I have three mini splits in my house, plus I have two forced air uh, air handlers which are called low static pressure, or pardon me, medium static pressure forced air units. They, I, I lovingly refer to them as pizza box sized units, and they move about five or 600 CFM compared to a kind of a standard upflow unit that's maybe 1,200 CFM. So I was able to zone those quite well. I was also able to add an extra mini split that wasn't needed in my calcs and was what I call a party unit, And I bought it for summertime use thinking, you know, if I have a bunch of people over my house in the summertime and I've got this kind of four cylinder engine to cool my house, what happens if my windows and doors are open a bunch? Uh, You know, my kids have a party or we have a bunch of adults over. I want that extra air conditioning. But as it turns out, uh, I actually use that mini split in my living room quite a bit more in the winter time because I wanted just a little bit of supplemental cooling, or pardon me, supplemental heating in my living room area so that I could keep my thermostat really low. I kind of kept my thermostat in the master bedroom to like 65 degrees, let's say, so I could sleep colder and I didn't want to warm up the bedroom during the course of the day, but I did want to warm up the living room and the kitchen in the wintertime. So that party unit was clutch for that. And then in the reverse of that, in the summertime, when it was 105, there was a couple days that Uh, in my thermostat with my smaller right size Mitsubishi unit was having a hard time keeping down to 72. Uh, And if I wanted to even drop it down to 70, let's say I didn't have the horsepower to do that very quickly. I could over time, but not quickly. So having that extra mini split uh, in my living room was absolutely phenomenal. I loved it. Huge fan. If you're building luxury houses, I think we should be talking absolutely to our clients about party units and uh, and not oversizing their equipment, but having additional equipment that's small and that can turn on when needed. Uh, let's see, what are the couple of the things that I wanted to talk to you on this on this uh, kind of energy efficiency and comfort? Let's talk about comfort from pests and bugs. My old house across the street, traditional vented attic. You could go up in that attic, and as soon as you poked your head up in the attic, it would take you three seconds to locate rat turds. (laughs) And anybody in Texas knows exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever been in an attic uh, or any kind of a mechanical room that's, you know, a vented mechanical room, there is absolutely rat droppings in those spaces. You're also going to find typically uh, dead roaches Dead bugs, uh, spiders, all that kind of stuff in any ventilated space in Texas. I'm assuming that my friends in the other part of the co- in other parts of the country have that as well. But in my house, with my sealed, conditioned attic space, there has not been a single bug sighting. There's not been a single rat sighting. There's no rat poop. It's just incredibly difficult to tell you uh, that level of comfort. That it brings me, and frankly my wife, uh, to not have a pest control guy anymore, to not be wondering, hey, I wonder if we're, we're going to get rats in our attic uh, as the weather changes, like we tended to get uh, in the cold months uh, in my previous house. I even had lemurs in my attic one time at my old house. You know what that is? It, it looks like a almost like a small raccoon with a with a uh, like a ringed tail. I had a family of lemurs get in my attic. Uh, and they made a nest over my master bathroom in the, um, uh, in the insulation there. And I would hear them at night. Uh, I don't know doing what. They must be nocturnal. And I eventually trapped them and got them out of my attic. But then I went up in the attic and had to fix all the mess. They had, they had opened up a duct uh, in my attic. I don't know if, if they liked the cold air or hot air, whatever time of year it was. Uh, but they also pooped everywhere. I had nasty drywall. It was disgusting. So not having that space anymore, that's that ventilated space, that's a that's a comfort level that I think we can sell our clients. Uh that's not an not a hollow promise like energy efficiency or lower energy bills, but it's a promise that really makes a big deal. And I think people will absolutely pay for that. Uh, another detail that I really spent time on in my house was sealing between foundation and framing. Now, I did that in a couple of uh, areas with some different products, but one product that in particular that I used was Prosigo's Joint and Seam. If you're not familiar with Prosico, uh they make all kinds of different commercial grade products, but you're seeing their products more and more in residential builds as well because their uh, fluid applied flashings are just absolutely fantastic to work with. And they make uh, a red version of a fluid applied flashing that they call fast flash, which looks and acts and feels a lot like Zip Systems uh, liquid flash. But they make another version that has kind of a fiber in it, almost a fiberglass fiber in it that they call joint and seam. And it's intended uh, to use as a air barrier, water barrier, and uh, and uh, kind of uh, uh, joint seaming fluid applied on any joint that's not tight. And in fact, they say that it'll span up to, don't quote me on this, either three-eighths of an inch or three-quarters of an inch, and certainly bigger if you have a backer rod in there. But I use that because it sticks tenaciously to concrete and sticks tenaciously to wood, and because it's got a fiber in there, it can span bigger gaps. And so I think that's a perfect uh, fluid-applied flashing to use between concrete and framing. And I, myself, personally taped my concrete about an inch down and then taped my uh, zip system sheathing about an inch up, and I went around the entire outside of my house and did uh, ProSco joint and seam as my air tightness. And at my old house, I had ants all over the place at various times of the year, and I, I spent. Gosh, what did I spend, like $200 a quarter on a uh, on a guy from a bug company to come out and spray the perimeter of my house? And I have spent $0 on bug people in the last two years in my house because I spent an extreme amount of time and effort getting those air tightness details right. And it's really paid off for me in the long run. The last thing that I'll mention on comfort, this is kind of a side note, but uh, after I moved in, I didn't get this right when I moved in, but after I moved in I put a, a Champion... 14 KW propane powered, uh, home standby generator in. And I did propane because my neighborhood has gas has natural gas, but I wanted to kind of unplug from the natural gas in my neighborhood. I didn't want to spend the 30, I think it's around 32 or $35 a month that they charge you just for what they call a quota line fee, I think is what they call it. And then on top of that, whatever natural gas you use. So I did all electric at my house. Uh, electric uh, water heater, I have a uh, uh, heat pump water heater, I have electric for my cooking, I have electric for everything in my house. My, my Mitsubishis obviously are electric because they're heat pumps. But because I didn't have that natural gas line, oh shoot, how do I do about a home standby generator <laughs> if I want one? And I did want to put one in after all. So this was kind of a, a, a wonky thing. But what I ended up doing was making myself a little propane farm Uh, Because where I wanted to put my generator and my propane, I couldn't use a buried tank or an above above grade larger size tank because I wouldn't, I didn't meet the Texas Railroad Commission rules. So what I did was I poured a concrete pad and made a space uh, that met all the Railroad Commission rules by using those big, tall propane bottles. Think about the propane bottle like you have for your uh, barbecue and then, put steroids on that instead of, I I think they call them 50 pound, uh, propane bottles. And it's 50 pounds empty before the propane goes in. So it's like shy of 200 pounds when it's in, they're about five feet tall. And I made space for a dozen of those bottles. The only downside of that though, is, uh, I've only got eight days worth of propane if my generator is running on full tilt. So if we have an outage and I'm worried about going longer than a week, say, I'm going to have to either uh, turn my propane uh, line off to shut off my generator at night, or I'm going to have to kind of keep track of how much is my generator running at 50% speed versus 100 speed uh, and do some calcs to find out how long those 12 bottles are going to last me. Or, of course, I could go out during the course of those eight days and refill some of the bottles that are emptying. Long story short, I'm really glad from a comfort perspective that I've got that Champion home standby generator, but I think in hindsight, I should have probably just stayed with natural gas. It would have been so much easier to just pay the uh, you know, $40 a month or $35 a month bill from the natural gas company and not ever have to worry about it. Although I guess with my calcs, what would that be? 35 bucks a month times 12 months, that's $420 a year for the privilege of a gas line times let's say 10 years so that'd be four thousand bucks i guess if i stay in my house over 10 years it's going to be worth it it's probably what i spent about on my uh propane cage and my bottles probably four thousand bucks so if as long as i stay there longer than 10 years i'm good to go now i stayed in the house across the street 15 years will i stay at this one 15 or longer i don't know we'll see but i can tell you what it has been unbelievable uh from a comfort perspective, living in this high performance house. Last thing I want to mention when, from, when it comes to comfort, I spent a lot of time and effort uh, thinking about my dehumidification and I'm going to save some of this for the HVAC issue, which by the way, will be uh, next up in this series. But I did two dehumidifiers on my two story house. I did one that services the upstairs and one that services the downstairs. And the one upstairs is the smallest model that Santa Fe makes Uh, It's the 70H model, which means that it's going to take 70 pints of water over a 24-hour period if conditions are uh, correct to meet that standard. And then the downstairs unit is the 98H, which is a little bit bigger. And if you kind of look just at the specs on their website, I probably could have done my whole house in the bigger size and not had to put a second one in. But from a comfort perspective, I really like having that extra amount of dehumidification. And that's something that I want to mention on this podcast for any of you Southern builders in particular. Uh, You've seen me talk about the need for dehumidification a lot. Uh, I just absolutely think if you're building in the South, you need a separate and dedicated dehumidifier. And I even think you shouldn't run it uh, with your ductwork that is part of your HVAC system. It should have its own standalone ductwork. But if you've got a two-story house or if you have a high performance house, if you have a fresh air system, You really need to think about oversizing that dehumidifier in terms of capacity compared to what's kind of uh, the rated amount needed versus the actual amount. And here's why. If you look at uh, my house on paper, uh, I've got uh, two adults and four children and one dog. And so we could figure out the general calcs for that. But what you can't figure out on those calcs is how many of the children are teenagers (laughs) and Three of the four of my children are teenagers and fit into the absolutely classic stereotype, which is teenagers take stupid long showers, and I have to knock on the door and be like, what the heck are you doing in there? I feel like you've been in the shower 30 minutes. Get that out. And part of that's my fault. You know, I put in an 80-gallon uh, heat pump water heater that doesn't seem to run out of hot water. And so my kids take hot showers, and they stay in there forever. It's one thing if it's your spouse who wants to take a long shower. Sure, honey, go for it. Take as long a shower as you want. But to have my 13-year-old take a 30 or maybe 45-minute shower, it's crazy how long he's in there. He's listening to uh, country music. Sometimes he's listening to YouTube videos. He just never seems to get out. And that absolutely raises the humidity in your house and is something that's really hard to account for if you multiply that by several teenagers. And the last thing that I don't think I really realized until I lived in the house was that even with an ERV, that's an energy recovery ventilator, and I even put really the world's most efficient ERV in, which is uh, some of the Zender Q series, you still raise the humidity in your house by exchanging indoor air with outdoor air. Do you want it? Yes, you do. But you need to make sure you plan for it. And having that extra capacity of that dehumidifier means that I'm able to still keep my house at a below 60, you know, ideally closer to 50% relative humidity, even in these days, like it's been in here in the fall in Austin, Texas, where it's been crazy. Uh, you know, the last couple of days, we've seen temperatures in in the low 80s. And every morning, when I look at my uh, weather app, I'm seeing that the humidity is somewhere between 70 and, and uh, 80 or 85% humidity. So I mean, that is just crazy high humidity outside. And if it's, 80 degrees and 80% humidity, you're dripping with sweat outside. You are. I don't care what you do, we're just walking the dog, you're going to get sweaty. So we need to keep that humidity down from a comfort perspective in our houses. And having the dehumidifier capacity to do that is a really big deal. All right, friends, I should probably wrap this up. I went twice as long as I expected. Uh, Eric on the switchboard back there is probably laughing at me because I was like, oh, it's going to be a 20 minute episode. Don't worry, I'll be fast. I'm by myself. But It's hard for me to stop when I get uh, rolling on something I'm passionate about. Friends, really appreciate you guys uh, listening in today. Hopefully, I gave you some good advice uh, for selling your clients on comfort, uh, for thinking about high-performance houses. And I just want to encourage you that if you've not built high-performance to date, man, you've got to change. You've got to start building high-performance. It is the absolute future. It's the right thing to do from so many reasons and so many perspectives. Uh, you know, from your perspective, it's going to keep you out of hot water. From your client's perspective, uh, you're going to help them long-term in this house. You're also helping society out long-term by building houses that are dramatically more efficient, more durable, more comfortable, uh, and more healthy than the standard construction that we see around us all over in the U.S. Guys, that being said, hit that subscribe button. We've got new content here every single Friday on our podcast. Follow me on TikTok or Instagram. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on The Build Show Podcast.